Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is a special episode of the History of the World podcast on the pre-Columbian mound builders of North America. Upon discovery of North America during the Age of Discovery, Europeans quickly found great earthwork mounds on the landscape and they were to be discovered far and wide throughout the North American continent. These mounds could range from tumuli, which were typically circular and were similar to the burial mounds found in Eurasia, not unlike the Kurgans of the Eurasian steppe, to the earthwork mounds built in a particular shape such as the well-known serpent mound in Ohio. The European immigrants had a range of options about who built these mounds and why, with many speculating that they were built by a long-gone but advanced society. The thing that puzzled the European immigrants was that a good level of technological expertise and equipment would have been needed to build these mounds in some cases, and no evidence of advanced technology existed. It has taken modern science since the late 19th century to give a clearer picture of what these mounds are, who built them and how. This episode will explore the cultures that we have identified and what we have learned about them. At some point in history, maybe just before, during or just after the last glacial maximum, it is generally believed that a migration of humans crossed the ice sheets covering the Bering Strait and became the first humans to step foot in the Americas. These peoples seemingly evolved culturally independently from other continents of the world. Back in Volume 2, we spoke of how there appeared to be a shift in culture at a site called Poverty Point, in North Louisiana State in the southern United States. This site dates back to the second millennium BCE and is characterised by earthworks and mounds. What this tells us in a broad sense is that due to the level of work required to create these earthworks, there must have been a degree of sedentism, therefore telling us that the societies of this area had started losing their nomadic nature. However, in the 1990s, the dating of a site called Watson Brake suggested that large-scale earthworks may have been created as long ago as five and a half thousand years ago. This is a time that is comparable to the Kurgan cultures of the Pontic Caspian Steppe. The Adena Culture
Another very ancient emergence of mounds was further north in Ohio State, and there wasn't just one instance or coalescence, but a number of them over a wide area within the state and across the borders into Indiana, Kentucky and Pennsylvania. One such earthwork mound was discovered at the site of a mansion house built in the early 19th century called Adena Mansion and was subsequently called Adena Mound. The mound is now gone thanks to its destruction through excavation, something that wouldn't be permitted now. The mound contained human remains and artefacts, which points towards a stratification of society where tribal leaders or notable warriors were held in higher esteem than the rest of the society. Those earthworks found dating to a similar time period and in a similar geographical area have been stated to belong to the Adena culture, named after this type site mound. Some of the influence of the Adena culture appears to have affected cultures all the way east to the modern Canadian province of New Brunswick. With the discovery of similar sites where earthwork mounds were built with a somewhat conical appearance, it was suggested that a network of tribes existed in the area with no evidence of central rule. The cultural aspects that these tribes shared are believed to have been learned from each other, as there is evidently a progression with domestic crop produce that dates to around 600 BCE. This is not when domestication first emerged, as this happened much earlier, but there does appear to be a widespread expertise and upsurge in activity by this point in history. The burial practices of the Adena culture varied from site to site, as it is important to realise that this was not a nation of people under one rule, but a series of tribes sharing connections. Over time, it seems that some of the burial mounds became more elaborate with the use of different materials such as wood. Some of the individuals buried would be covered with red ochre, which is a tradition that can be found with many prehistoric and ancient burials all around the world. Some bodies appear to have been placed in a deliberate direction, perhaps with regard for the objects of the sky. Some of the bodies would be buried while others were cremated. Sometimes the bones are found in a manner that suggests their rearrangement, which suggests that a ceremonial ritual took place or that the individual had been dead for some time before their ultimate burial. The grave goods discovered at Adena burial mounds demonstrate that goods were travelling long distances to reach their final destination, such as foodstuffs that were not of the geographical location that they were discovered in. Evidence of copper in places that you would not expect to discover it seemed to demonstrate a network of trade between the different settlements. Stonework also shows up in places where it clearly didn't originate. Shells that must have originated from the Gulf Coast were found in the Adena cultural range. The network was truly considerable. So it seems that by and large, the way of life for the tribes of the Adena culture was somewhat successful, and it was for this reason that the traditions of the culture migrated over long distances. Some of the earthworks became quite elaborate, with circular enclosures suggesting some kind of ceremony may have taken place within them. 
The Hopewell Tradition. The peak of the Adena culture is looked upon historically as the Hopewell Tradition. We can see this as the progression of the Adena culture. Mound building became more impressive and links to the culture are much more widespread to a point where historians do not like to refer to the Hopewell as a culture but instead a tradition. The Hopewell tradition can be separated into geographical areas which we can explore during this episode but we can see that the influence of these traditions can be found throughout the eastern United States from southern Canada in the north down to the Florida Panhandle in the south. Mounds from this period spanning the end of the first millennium BCE through to the middle of the first millennium CE show a much more considered construction with timber structures supporting clay floors and chambers and crypts within the mound. Grave goods were both local and exotic, and many of the aspects of the Hopewell are following on from the Adena, and in some cases we see the tradition referred to as Adena Hopewell. The use of the mounds for funerary purposes varies from place to place. Some mounds contain multiple burials, but many are seemingly used for a highly revered individual, but it is not possible for us to categorically state why the individual was highly revered, so the male could be a king, a warrior, a priest, or indeed something else. Smoking pipes were commonplace in Hopewell graves, and they were also present in Adena graves of an earlier period. It is suggested that the tobacco in this area of the world was highly hallucinogenic, and this could be linked to practices that we more closely relate to shamanism, where the shaman of the tribe enters hypnotic states in order to contact the spirit world. We see evidence of the use of hallucinogenics in the ancient cultures of South America also, but it is thought to have been used here for spiritual ceremonies, so this could also relate to the reasons for hallucinogenics use in North America too. The Copina culture is a culture based in northwest Alabama, spilling over the borders into Mississippi and Tennessee. Many of the artefacts in this area are made from the metallic forms of copper and galena, with Copina being a portmanteau of the two words. The centre of the Adena and Hopewell traditions is Ohio, but the Copina culture is much further south. The Copina mortuary complex contains around 50 burial mounds, but we can find quantities of jewellery such as ear spools and bracelets. Beads and shells were used for materials alongside the metal forms. Experts suggest that the Copina culture, a culture assigned to the Hopewell tradition, can actually be tracked as a continuous culture throughout the Adena and Hopewell periods. Further north and into the state of Kentucky, we can identify another Hopewellian culture called the Crab Orchard Culture. They are noted for their pottery distinctly finished with fabric impressions on its surface. The Crab Orchard Culture are in the centre of the Hopewellian network of cultures, so would have surely encountered much in the way of trade movements. The Crab Orchard culture are responsible for a mysterious earthwork that has been described to be in the shape of a tuning fork and is quite unique. Travelling north into Illinois and we find the centre of the basis of the Havana culture, once again a member of the Hopewell tradition. 
The Toolsboro Mound Group can be found just over the state border with Iowa and dates to the turn of the first millennium, around 2,000 years ago. Experts suggest that there must have been a village nearby but do not know where. But this does suggest that mound sites are generally not residential but ceremonial. Further west and we discover the Kansas City culture mainly centred on the state of Missouri but can also be discovered in the state of Kansas, which pretty much represents the westernmost extent of the Hopewell tradition. For the Kansas City culture, not only do we have evidence of mound building, but we also have excavated a number of villages that give us clues about how these people lived their everyday lives. We can see remnants of the diet that tells us that they were indeed agricultural but also continued hunting and gathering in order to get the best of both worlds. Evidently the villages were interacting with the Hopewellian trade network but as we mentioned this appears to be the westernmost extent. Once again we find that the pottery of this region is finished in a distinct fashion with decorative punctuations and shapes carved into the surfaces. One of the most iconic of all American earthworks is called Serpent Mound in Adams County, Ohio. It is an earthwork in the shape of a serpent that stretches over 400 metres in length. It is described as the world's largest serpent effigy and it overlooks the Ohio Bush Creek to its west. It is not believed to be a mortuary site and original dating techniques revealed it to be around a thousand years old. However, more recent efforts to date the site suggest that it could be even older, dating back to the Hopewell tradition, which would be quite a considerable development. Maybe the site was already being used for ceremonial purposes by Hopewell tradition tribes, and the serpent effigy was embellished around a thousand years ago. As more work is done at this site, we will likely obtain a clearer picture. After the turn of the first millennium, it appears that Hopewell traditions migrated further outwards and there is evidence of this in southern Alabama and Georgia where these traditions reached the East Coast and the Atlantic Ocean. From around the year 100, the Swift Creek culture developed in this area and once again could be identified by their pottery finishing as with a number of other male building cultures that we have already discovered. Experts argue about whether the Swift Creek culture are a part of the Hopewell tradition or just a progression of it or simply just contemporaneous. This might be due to the fact that the Swift Creek culture were a lot more nomadic than those Hopewellian tribes to the northwest. At a similar time that these Atlantic Coast cultures emerged, as did Gulf Coast cultures, such as the Marksville culture of the modern state of Louisiana, and stretching inland to the Mississippi and Arkansas. By contrast to the Swift Creek culture, the Marksville apparently lived in settlements, with some of them being quite large. So this really demonstrates the diversity of the cultures across the sphere of Hopewell influence. We should maybe not feel surprised by this as the eastern United States is a vast area and if we were looking at a similar area in ancient Europe or the ancient Near East then we would not be surprised to find that different peoples of similar distinct geographical areas would display differences in their day-to-day -day lifestyle also. The grave goods of the Marksville once again 
demonstrated the connection to the Hope World Trade Network across the eastern United States. Jewellery, pipes and figurines accompanied by marine artefacts that are not surprising to find from Gulf Coast societies, which include shells and pearls. So what does all of this actually mean? What was going on in lands of the modern USA 2,000 years ago? Who were the people and what were they doing? The problem when answering these questions is that unlike what was going on in Europe at this time, when the Roman Empire was just starting to flourish, we do not have any written records and our investigative techniques are comparable to those that we were using to establish what was going on in Mesopotamia and Egypt before the inception of the writing styles of cuneiform and hieroglyphs. We have no record of any named individuals, even though we can clearly find the remains of individuals. So the suggestions about what life was like for the American natives 2,000 years ago is a question that is a subject to the opinions of experts and these experts will not always agree about what they believe. So when presenting a general overview such as this one, it is very important to state that we will present what we believe to be the most popular consensus among experts. There had to be an element of nomadism in the eastern United States around this time, but different cultures showed different levels of sedentism. And what we mean by that is that we find more settlements among some geographical groups than others. There was definitely a trade connection between the societies of the eastern United States as demonstrated by the excavated goods throughout the area, demonstrating that artefacts had travelled from one side of the cultural sphere of influence to the other. The Adena culture appeared to be centred in and around the modern state of Ohio and the advancement and density of the sites there point towards the area of Ohio being central or highly influential within the Hopewell tradition. Over the course of many generations, we can't exactly be sure whether Ohio Hopewell merchants were the ones travelling these vast distances or whether the movement of goods was much more localised so that goods from the south passed through many hands before arriving in the north. We also cannot be sure whether the differing tribes and societies had a centralised ruler who ruled over multiple villages, a village chief who was responsible for his own village alone, or something much more egalitarian. But we do know that in some of the burial mounds, the individual had to be quite revered within their society, so it is possible that there were tribal chiefs or monarchs. The idea of spiritual ceremony is brought to life somewhat by the discovery of what is believed to be a ceremonial road that connects the areas around the modern towns of Chillicothe and Newark, both in Ohio. Only parts of the road have been detected and these parts only suggest the presence of a 60-mile thoroughfare due to the direction of these parts and the style of the parts being similar. Experts have suggested that the road was constructed for the purpose of religious pilgrimages. Interestingly, both the Serpent Mound and the Alligator Effigy Mound, both ancient animal-shaped mounds, are on the same axis in Ohio. And although we know that the Serpent Mound and the Alligator Effigy Mound took their modern shapes around a thousand years after the Hopewell tradition, it is possible that these sites may have had a spiritual significance before this time. 
this construction has been called the Great Hopewell Road. And although we may never know its exact purpose, experts continue to investigate for more clues about it. Troyville and Coles Creek Mound building societies continued to exist long after the age of the Hopewell tradition. The Troyville culture followed on from the Marksville culture, which if you remember was the culture that flourished in and around the modern state of Louisiana and was notable for the fact that it appeared to have more larger settlements than some of the other contemporary cultures of the South. The Troyville culture existed around the middle of the first millennium and was contemporary to the Baytown culture further up the Mississippi River Valley. Those large settlements that were a feature of the Hopewellian-Marksville culture seemed to diminish in size and experts suggest that this could be down to a number of factors. Agricultural yields may have diminished due to over-farming of the land or climatic changes and larger settlements could have just simply broken down into several smaller settlements that were more practical to maintain under these conditions. Agriculture continued and was coupled with hunting and gathering. Many multi-mound complexes date from this period in this region. At the town of Jonesville, Louisiana, on the banks of the Black River, an ancient multi-mound complex once existed that has been destroyed somewhat. The main mound on this, the Troyville Earthworks, is suggested to have once stood 82 feet in height, making it the second tallest known pre-Columbian mound in North America, not far behind Monk's Mound at Cahokia, the tallest. The mound has been destroyed, so that material has been used for other building projects since the 19th century. The mound was originally believed to be in three layers, so it was comparable in shape to some of the Mesoamerican pyramids. It was a highly considered earthwork construction, with a methodical architecture using different materials. The subsequent Coles Creek culture sees a significant advancement of society, so life in the river valleys of Louisiana was fruitful and successful in general. Evidently, the populations of this culture, who lived over the turn of the second millennium, utilised agriculture, hunter-gatherer techniques and fishing to complete their everyday diet, so the transition to fully agricultural was never made. Mound building continued, but evidently there must have been a stratified society as mass burial sites have been found where there is little evidence of ceremony, as opposed to the highly ceremonial mound burials exclusively for elite members of society, adorned with grave goods from far and wide. Nonetheless, there is still a feeling that the Coles Creek culture still held on to some egalitarian values when compared to some other contemporary cultures and this is indicated by the age of the individual seemingly being a factor in burial style. Mississippian Cultures The Mississippian cultures emerged at a similar time to the Coles Creek culture in and around the 7th and 8th centuries. The influence of the Mississippians was extensive, covering areas of the southeast and the mid-continent, where one of the most significant sites can be found at Cahokia in Illinois, close to the border with Missouri at St. Louis, and therefore very close to the Mississippi River. 
Monk's Mound is the tallest pre-Columbian mound in North America. It is believed to have housed a large building inside that may have been an important temple or administrative building. It is part of a larger complex called Cahokia Mounds. Hundreds of mounds make up the site of Cahokia Mounds in an area over five square miles in area. The area may have supported around 20,000 residents, making it a very significant settlement, which is comparable in size to some of the larger cities in Europe at the same time period. The culture and traditions of the Mississippians appears to have flourished along many of the river valleys of the eastern United States. Grave goods include weapons that point towards a warrior culture being highly respected, so competition would have been as considerable as ever. Copper artefacts depict bizarre images and living beings which suggest a spiritual connection to the warrior culture. Perhaps the great warriors of the Mississippians represented the priestly class, but this is highly debatable. Despite Monk's Mound clearly containing a building, other mounds would have had buildings erected on top of them. Many Mississippian settlements would have been experts at maize cultivation, as this crop appears to be more prominent during their time. We suggested that the Coles Creek culture in the south would have had a more egalitarian social hierarchy, but this is in comparison to Mississippian cultures who appear to have been showing more signs of social stratification based on the artefacts discovered. It appears that larger settlements may have had influence over smaller settlements surrounding it. Despite the Mississippians being more advanced than the Hopewell traditions that were present a number of centuries beforehand, Experts suggest that the trade network did not operate as smoothly during the period of the Mississippians and this could have been due to heightened tensions between neighbouring peoples. Some of this information could sound like considerable assumptions but Mississippian cultures were discovered by the first European settlers who wrote about the traditions of the Native Americans so these warrior and priestly cults were consistent to what was observed by European explorers on their first arrival in the Americas. Fort Ancient Culture The Fort Ancient Culture is a culture that developed alongside the Mississippian culture centred on southern Ohio and its borders with Kentucky and West Virginia. The dependence on cultivated maize is shared by both the Fort Ancient and the Mississippian, but there appeared to be less evidence of a definitive social hierarchy among the Fort Ancient. The Fort Ancient are credited with the creation of the Serpent Mound, mentioned earlier in the episode, but of course we know of the suspicion that the site of Serpent Mound may have had some earlier significance to the Hopewell cultures from a millennium previous. Effigy mounds are more common among the Fort Ancient culture with not only the Serpent Mound but the Alligator Mound also attributed to them. Both of these effigy mounds could have been built with respect for the theorised Great Hopewell Road that may have been a road of pilgrimage dating back to an earlier time. Fort Ancient still shows evidence of long-distance trade of goods, despite there clearly being less fluidity to long-distance trade than seems apparent with the Hopewell cultures of the past. 
the cultivation of the three traditional American crops, maize, beans and squash, appears to be well practised by the Fort Ancient settlements and there appears to be less dependency on hunted meat than with previous cultures, despite the fact that spears and atlatls had now been replaced by the more highly favoured development of the bow and arrow. Fort ancient cultures disappeared very rapidly following the arrival of Europeans in North America during the Age of Exploration, and we're really not completely sure why. Some experts suggest that diseases brought from the opposite side of the Atlantic Ocean are responsible, but there is little evidence of large-scale interaction between the fought ancient settlements and the European migrants. The Plaquemine Culture We discussed the Troyville and Coles Creek cultures of the lands in and around the modern state of Louisiana, but who was living in this area of the Americas when the Europeans arrived? As we have already discovered, Mississippian cultures existed in the southeast and the centre, while Fort Ancient cultures existed in and around the state of Ohio. The Plaquemine culture can be seen as a progression of the Coles Creek culture. However, there was a culture more closely linked to the Mississippians who expanded onto the western fringes of the Plaquemine lands on the lands of East Texas, and they were called the Caddo culture. The mound-building style of the Plaquemine was set out to look like a ceremonial centre, so for example, two mounds straddling a central plaza, with the mounds looking like pyramids with their layered construction. Further mounds could be constructed on top of these pyramid-like structures. Shallow graves found on these mounds are thought by some to actually be primary burial locations before the bodies were reinterred at a later time. We shouldn't be surprised to find ornate grave goods made from numerous materials, both local and exotic, but some of the burial spots contain skulls only. So could this have been a place of great sacrifice? What we have learned about today's episode is that the plains and river valleys of the ancient United States were occupied by many tribes who developed their cultures at a much more leisurely pace than the highly competitive lands of Eurasia. The same principles of everyday life that had existed in ancient times across the world stood true, such as the desire for societies to explore the opportunities of agricultural production, naturally leading to sedentism and societal stratification. We also see the feeling of requirement to honour the dead rather than just allowing the body to be disposed of. Burials and sacrifice of objects and living beings to aid the deceased in their afterlife, or to honour the spirits of the earth, seem to be a common feature of America and Eurasia. The production of metal objects and ceremonial weapons is also a common aspect of both continents. Modern humans seem to be humans wherever they evolved in the world, with the same fundamental things being of importance. The whole story of Europeans first arriving in the Americas can be seen as a simple invasion and conquest, but the reality is much more complex. 
the first arrivals in the Americas, understood the exchange of favours such as the trade of items that were attractive to each other, meant that many of the same cultural attitudes towards aspects of life that had not necessarily existed when their last common ancestors were alive had evolved independently, essentially because humans solved the same problems with the same solutions. Fundamentally, how to guarantee a supply of food through domestication of plants and animals, how to support large sedentary societies by creating social hierarchies, and how to control the unknown forces of the universe by honouring the spirits behind them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the subject of the pre-Columbian mound builders of North America. And this subject was a special subject commissioned by a History of the World podcast Illuminati member called Larry Pollack. So Larry has made significant contributions towards the upkeep of the podcast and as such earned the right to commission an episode on the subject that he chose. And this is why this episode has taken place. So thank you very much, Larry. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, if you enjoy the podcast uh, and you want to support the podcast, then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com and click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do that, become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you too can qualify to commission your own special episodes. That could that could be your privilege as well. Uh, this week, we uh, welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, Martin Laird, and Yevgeny Antonov. So thank you very much to both of you and welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Go along and find out uh, what you can uh, what you can gain by having uh, having signed up to become a patron of the podcast. You will also get special access to the uh, to the special exclusive episodes that are for subscribers to the podcast, but they're also posted on the Patreon feed, so you'll also get access to them as well. But you can also sign up to be a subscriber on Spotify if you want to access all of the uh, original material and all of the bonus material all in one place. Listener messages and reviews. Uh, before I go on, um, I'd just like to uh, mention... Uh, that we're getting to that time of the year again. We're getting to the summer season. I will be at the Chalk Valley History Festival on Thursday the 29th and Friday the 30th of June. So I'll be floating around down there. I'm not down there in any official capacity, but I'll just be down there enjoying the festival. If you've never been before and you and you live in 
England then consider going down there it really is a, a wonderful if the weather's beautiful as well it's, it's, it's fantastic so I strongly recommend it so many different demonstrations different speakers different presentations and you know not all of the presentations you have to pay for to, to watch so you only have to pay to enter the site and uh, you can come and relax and listen to some of the experts speaking about different subjects of history uh, like last year I, I listened to a little bit about the Bayer Tapestry and um, there was a practical demonstration of artillery. Um, also um, a reenactment of the of one of the battles of Alexander the Great. I can't remember which one it was now, but um, um, certainly members of the members of the audience were invited to take part and that can be a bit of fun as well. So um, a lot of stuff to do with more modern history, like twentieth century warfare, uh, that kind of thing, and uh, and I think every year they build a wattle and daub house down there, so you can see like ancient stuff. So it's, 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 there's something for everyone down there. So I strongly recommend it. And if you're down there on Thursday the twenty ninth or or Friday the thirtieth, I might bump into you. Anyway, going forward, um, the other thing that we talk about this time of year. Uh, is it's uh, almost a History of the World podcast's birthday again. I think it's the 24th of June, if I'm not mistaken, this year. The podcast will be five years old. Um, quite quite incredible, really. I, I, I don't know how I've done it, looking back, but I have, and somehow here we are, five years in. We've had uh, an episode every week for the last five years. Um, anyway... Um, Going on, um, this section of the podcast is about listener messages and reviews. I'll I'll do the review first just because I've got it open in front of me. Disappointed 1976 uh, from the United States of America has put brilliant. Chris is a profound lover of history and that passion shows in every episode. His podcasts are thoroughly researched and lovingly presented and he is an engaging, likeable and unassuming host. I'm 30 episodes in it and I'm not stopping until I reach the end. Thank you very much, Disappointed 1976. Uh, Yevgeny Antonov uh, has written in and um, and said, Hello, Chris. The name is Yevgeny. I have discovered your podcast earlier this spring when I was looking for suitable background for reconstruction of my bedroom and I was instantly captivated by it. Your choice of the starting point of the discussion about human civilization, which is about starting colonizing, uh, which is about to start colonizing space or to destroy itself utterly, was absolutely amazing. The way of how the material is structured and served is the benchmark for anyone. One of the most remarkable things about your podcast is the possibility to form one's own opinion that you give to your listeners. Here is the theory. Here are the facts that support it. Here are the facts that confront it. Make up your own mind. I continue listening to your podcast whilst commuting to work and back home. This makes averagely two episodes on each workday. I hope that your podcast will continue to deliver as much entertainment and education as it was until now. You're doing a terrific job. P.S. Not to be only sugar and honey. Is the word millennium pronounced millennia in the plural? Uh, well, yes, Jenny. Um, the answer is yes. The word millennium pronounced uh, is pronounced millennia in plural uh, because uh, essentially it's a Latin word. And uh, so uh, millennia was the Latin plural. Uh, but of course, I'm an Englishman. 
and uh, I'm speaking in English. And although millennia is accepted in English, I choose to say millenniums because it's it's not incorrect in English to say millennium. So that just seems a bit more correct for me to say millennium and millenniums. But it's not incorrect to say millennia because that is the original plural. So you're right. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Jeff Ginny. Um, Eric Van S sent uh, a message through Patreon saying, Hi, Chris, after a couple of negative reviews relating to your advertising, I would like to give my support to your advertisement. Materials for podcasts can be expensive. If this helps with the bills, I am for it. I have a feeling most of your listeners are fine with advertising too. You do a great job. I look forward to your podcast every week. Keep up the good work. Yep. Um, thanks, Eric. Um, the you know the the opportunity that advertising creates for the podcast is is uh, almost unignorable eric so uh, thank you very much uh colton bowman has put uh hey chris micah from australia commented on your latest episode about the new ads and how they were getting gambling related ones i can def- definitely identify with not wanting those as here in ontario canada our government recently legalized sports betting The industry has gone crazy and pumped money into ads in every space they can. Many people are sick of it and the industry doesn't seem to care about the harm created. I just wanted to say good on you for saying you don't want those types of ads in your podcast. I think a lot of podcasters don't really think uh, about or care too much about what ads get played. It's very nice to know that you're willing to make sure your podcast has ads that you find appropriate. As for the whole ad structure itself, I seem to be just getting a single ad between the main part of the podcast and the listener reviews and wrap up. It was a little jarring at first, but if it can help to bring some more revenue for you and this massive project, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Keep up the good work, still listening and still love it, Colton. Thanks, Colton. Yes. um, Yeah, I mean, I think... um, you know, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have any adverts. And I, and I think you can subscribe through Spotify and cut out the adverts as well. So, But um, I think you've identified one thing that I deliberately avoid is putting an ad in the middle of the main bulk of the information. So um, I've deliberately done that and I've um, deliberately opted out of uh, ads to do with politics and uh, gambling, So, uh, which I think is the appropriate thing to do. David Hannon has written in, um, and David was the man who commissioned last week's special episode about the Emirate of Granada, and he's written in and said, Hello, Chris, I'm writing to thank you for the special episode on the Emirate of Granada, which was broadcast this week. It was a really well put together episode, and I enjoyed being able to forward it on to my friends and family who live, as do I, in Granada. Hopefully you may be able to gain some new listeners. Keep up the good work and many thanks again for the hard work and dedication put into making this podcast episode a reality. I hope other listeners to your podcast also enjoyed it. Regards, David Hannon. I I hope they did as well. It's a, it's a great story, isn't it? The, the Emirate of Granada. Uh, and Chris Morris wrote in to say, really enjoying your podcast on world history. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for writing in, Chris, and thank you for your message. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, the next episode, um, hopefully next week, we'll have, we'll have to see how it goes, will be about the Elizabethan sea dogs. Now, if you don't really know anything about them, it's, we're basically going into the Tudor period of English history and the era of the Spanish Armada in the first sort of, in the, in the earliest years of the formation of 
the the Spanish Empire, if you like. So uh, with both England and Spain um, becoming uh, more interested in controlling the seas, it uh, brought them into conflict with each other, quite frankly. And uh, the pressures of piracy um, enabled Elizabeth, the Queen of England, to uh, almost legalise piracy from her side against the, Span against the Spanish by calling it privateering. And so we'll meet some of the characters, uh, coll colloquially called the Sea Dogs, that exploited that situation, and the likes of Sir Francis Drake and Sir, Sir Walter Raleigh. So, um, so that will be the next episode. Uh, another fantastic subject, isn't it? Um, and that uh, has been commissioned uh, by uh, David Peace, who's another History of the World podcast Illuminati member. So uh, looking forward to that one. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, if you want to continue listening, don't forget, subscribe on Spotify or sign up to uh, Patreon and then you can enjoy the bonus material. We get a bonus 10-minute episode about what source material was used to create this week's episode. So uh, until next week, um, thanks for listening and be good. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time. <laughs>